I want to uh, underscore what Pastor Kevin said earlier. Those of you who were here at the Valentine's Banquet, those of you who gave, who enjoyed it, the, the youth and everyone that, that made it happen, thank you for that. What a great, great night it was. I've commented to a couple of folks afterward, you know what, uh, it feels like we're back from COVID. It feels like we're, we're at church and doing church stuff with each other, loving each other again. And uh, what a great, great night that was. You'll be glad to know Pastor Kevin's preaching next week. Uh, I'll be out of the pulpit. Kim and I will be away next weekend. So uh, be here, support him, pray for him. Ask him anything you like. You know, so he has the answers. Uh, this morning we continue in our series, <clears throat> and uh, when I return in March, we will pick up and finish the series that will take us through to Easter. And we're talking about the conflict before us, questions from the conflict, war and peace in the Middle East, <clears throat> what is happening there, and the purpose of this series is to help us understand that conflict from a biblical context. We're not trying to answer all the questions, uh, political questions or otherwise, uh, we want to see what the Bible has to say and, and to put this in a biblical context for our own greater understanding as believers. And that's the purpose of this series. Uh, going forward in March, we're going to see what the Bible says about the relationship between Christians and Jews today. And that's often a question when we talk about Jews being God's chosen people. And as I've said many times, God. Uh, God's promise is irrevocable for his chosen people. What does that mean for us in our relationship with Jews? We understand from the New Testament that, that Christianity fulfills God's covenant, fulfills God's promise that started with the Jews. So what is our relationship now with the Jews and what does that mean for them? That's what we're going to explore as we move closer to Easter in March. Oh, this morning we want to uh, take a dive just a bit into the religious worldview of the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, you'll recall from our last two installments, very simply, God called Abraham and Sarah, Abraham to be the father of God's people. And it's through God's people, uh, through that lineage, that the Christ would be born, the Savior of the world would come. And the child of the promise is Isaac in the Bible. But then we saw last week that Abraham and Sarah tried to push God's hand just a bit. They, they, they doubted, they lacked faith, and, and uh, Ishmael was brought into the world that way as Sarah brought her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham. And Hagar had a child named Ishmael. And the Bible teaches that uh, because Ishmael was Abraham's son, God showed Ishmael grace, and that 12 nations would come out, 12 different sons, 12 nations would come out of the lineage of Ishmael as well, and of those nations, we understand even from scripture, it's stated that the Arab nations, the Arab people, came out of the lineage of Ishmael. Now, what we want to drill into this morning is why there is so much religious animosity from those of Arab descent toward Jews and Christians today. Uh, and the reason for that is the dominant religion, the dominant worldview of those of Arab descent is Islam. Islam is a specifically and distinctive uh, worldview and religion that arose out of the Arab nations, the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, there are three monotheistic religions, dominant religions in the world. Monotheistic meaning they worship one God. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 
Of those three religions, only one of them is, uh, excuse me, only two of those are biblical religions, Judaism and Christianity. And Christianity fulfills the promises of Judaism. Islam is not a biblical religion. Often we misunderstand that. We think that because it's also a monotheistic religion, that that it's also a biblical religion. But it's not. In fact, what happened through the centuries was Islam was created. Its origination was in direct conflict with Judaism and Christianity. It exists today to remain in conflict. And it exists today as a worldview, a religious worldview, that is the dominant worldview in the nations that are of Ishmael's descent. Americans have known this for a long time, but we, we encountered it very early as a nation. In 1786, uh, we, were the new, we were a new country. The colonies were suddenly a country. But because we were a nation, because our constitution had been ratified and now we were a nation, treaties we had from other nations, in particular France, a treaty we had with France to protect our shipping expired. As soon as we became a nation, we were no longer colonies. France was no longer obligated to protect us or to protect our shipping. And there was piracy going on off the coast of North Africa that had been going on for a long time. The Muslims in North Africa uh, were pirates and they would capture merchant ships off the coast and they would, hold, they would enslave and hold captive the crews of those ships until and unless the European nations paid them tribute. This was so bad and so dominant in the world that many of the European nations, including France, had actually come together. They had a financial uh, pot that they worked from to pay tribute to the Muslims, the pirates of the Barbary Coast and of North Africa, so they would not capture the merchant ships, so the ships could, could freely pass through. Well, suddenly America didn't have that protection, and they were not paying tribute. So the, the, the uh, Algerians of North Africa, the Muslims, captured two American merchant vessels and held those crews as slaves in North Africa. So Thomas Jefferson sailed to London. He met uh, John Adams in London, and they went together to the ambassador for the Algerians of North Africa, and they sat down with him, and they tried to nego- negotiate some kind of bargain where they would let these slaves go. They would let these Americans leave. North Africa. The Algerian ambassador all but laughed at them. No, he said, here's the ransom you have to pay, here's the amount you have to pay, and understand the Muslims had become very wealthy doing this for a long, long time, uncontested, because no one wanted to fight them. When he said no, Thomas Jefferson was affronted by it, to say the least. And here's the irony. Thomas Jefferson had just written the Declaration of Independence, which said, which said basically, based on a biblical worldview, that all people are created equal. That very Algerian ambassador would be welcome in the colonies as a person created in God's image, and he would have freedom of conscience and the freedom to move around. He could start a business in the colonies if he wanted to, uncontested, if he desired. And here he sat saying, no, we will not set these slaves free. Well, John Adams became angry. He knew this man really well. He became angry, and he flat out asked him, how do you justify this? How do you justify, rationalize this decision 
not only for Americans, colonists, but for anyone in the world that you can enslave who you like and hold them for ransom and require tribute from other countries so you will not attack their merchant ships. And in the most matter-of-fact way, as if he was ordering iced tea from Chick-fil-A, he answered, well, he said, the Quran tells us any who do not follow the prophet Muhammad are sinners. And we can plunder, enslave, and murder them whenever we like, wherever we like, and however we like. Those men from those merchant ships were slaves in Algeria for another decade. During that decade, Thomas Jefferson became president, built our navy, sent our navy and our marines to North Africa, and defeated the Algerians and stopped it. No tribute paid. They just said no. Because they understood, suddenly, you're dealing with a different worldview, a different concept of humanity, a different picture of God that's not of the Bible. This is the religion that arose from the descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael didn't start that. But it arose from the descendants of Ishmael about 600 years after Christ was born. 620, 30 A.D. A man named Muhammad who lived in West Saudi Arabia uh, started having visions. He was a young man and actually the visions and the voices frightened him. And he went to his wife who was older than him and quite wealthy and, and expressed his concern and his fear of these visions and these voices. And she said, don't worry about it. You need to listen to them. So the voice eventually started telling him that the voice came from the angel Gabriel and that Gabriel was going to give Muhammad the sacred book that had been preexistent with God in God's hands. And this sacred book would be dictated to Muhammad. It took 22 years for the Quran, according to Muhammad, to be fully dictated to him. Muhammad's big problem was what he perceived as paganism that had filtered into Christianity and Judaism on his part of the world. And by the time he had received, in his, in his story, had received the whole Quran, he understood the only action that could be taken was militant action. Now in 622 he was run out of Mecca, but in 630 he came back with an army. And he overthrew Mecca and he established Islam by force in Saudi Arabia. And that began the heritage of a religion and a worldview that spreads through conflict, violence, and force. Some Muslims will tell you that they are peaceful, and some Americans believe that, that Islam is a peaceful religion. After all, the, the name Islam means submission. So they submit to God. What they don't tell you is the Koran also teaches everyone else must submit to their God, their beliefs or they will face the consequences. Because if you're not an adherent to Islam, you're a sinner. And the only response to sinners in Islam is destruction. By force. And that's still how Islam spreads today. This morning, we're going to look at three key differences between Christianity in Islam to build a foundation and this bridge where in March we're going to be looking at the relationship between Jews and Christians and to do that I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 written by the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, and what we're going to do is look at these three differences. We're going to draw out some truths from Romans chapter 8 and apply those to the beliefs of Islam, this, this religious worldview that dominates those in Palestine and those throughout the Arab-speaking world. So look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to start reading at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that's a hint of things to come. How God fulfilled the law in Christianity. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Pause with me again. What Paul's doing is he's making a distinction now between those who are religious and those who are in Christ. Because you can be religious, you can even be a Baptist and not be in Christ. And those who are religious live according to the flesh. Think according to the flesh. Have a mindset according to material things, the flesh. Those who are saved in Christ have a mindset of the Spirit and, have, and live a life according to the Spirit because they've been set free from sin and death. Verse 6 says that. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pause again. Paul is talking about the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Those who live according to religion are hostile to God because God has revealed himself in Christ and they are denying Christ. And they are unable to do so because they will not submit to Christ. So therefore, verse 8, they cannot please God. It's impossible for someone who rejects Christ to please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That is, you Christians. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. You are headed for resurrection. If you're in Christ. Now in those 11 verses. Paul captures the nature of the Christian faith. And the difference between Christianity and religion. That religion is of the flesh. Religion is powered by arrogance, pride, and sin. Those who are born again in Christ. Those who are Christians. They are powered by the Holy Spirit. Their mindset and their thinking is motivated by the Holy Spirit. They see the world the way God does because they have submitted to Christ. Now for a few more minutes, what I want us to do is look at three differences between Christianity and Islam. Key differences. Differences on big issues that will help you, I think, understand not only this religion that came out of the heritage of Ishmael, Islam, and also help you understand Christianity even better because a lot of times there is misunderstanding. Between these things, I'll give you a good example. We sang just a little while ago, I am a friend of God. Do you know the Bible teaches, and Jesus even said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. God called Abraham, 
a friend of God. But that does not mean that God said, I want to just give you an attaboy. You're such a great girl, such a great guy. I want to be your buddy. <clears throat> I, want to, I want to hang out with you. That's not what that means. See, you can't appreciate what it means for God to say, you are a friend of God until you know who God is and that you are not a deserving friend. You were not a friend of God. You were an enemy of God. Paul says there's a, there was enmity between you and God until you trusted Christ as your Savior, received His grace by faith, that saving grace of God. Now, rather than be an enemy of God, you are a friend of God because you have submitted to Christ. He's not talking about being your buddy. He's revealing to you the nature of God and His love and His relationship with you. But when I say to you and when you and I sing, I am a friend of God, to the Muslim that is blasphemy. It is blasphemy that you and I would even think he would call us friends let alone you could call him friend. What are some of these differences? What are some of these differences? As we talk about this, tuck this basic fact away. There is one God, the God of the Bible, and he has established Christianity as the faith that we follow. God is the one. God is the one in the Bible who established Christianity as the faith we follow. First of all, we worship a different God. We worship a different God. Uh, this is very important for a couple of reasons. One is it's important to understand the difference between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible. But it's even more important because occasionally Christians even get confused by this and culture tries to tell us, listen, we're all worshiping the same God. We're all ultimately going the same direction. In fact, I have known Christians, well-meaning though in error, who have said, you know, we could worship at a Muslim mosque. There's no difference. Some in our community several years ago actually banded up, got together and drove to Wilmington and worshiped with the Muslim imam in Wilmington. Folks, we, we worship a different God. Here's what I mean. Uh, Islam teaches that God is Allah. That's what they call it. God is Allah. The, the phrase Allah simply means the God. It's not a name. They don't know God by name. They're not friends with God. And in the Quran, God never calls himself by name. Allah to the, to the Muslim is a distant God. They can't have a relationship with him. Uh, all they can do is obey the dictates that he gives them. That's all they can do. And they hope by obeying those dictates, by being religious, that God will ultimately accept them. But Allah is not the God of the Bible. In fact, we just read it in Romans chapter 8. The Bible assumes the nature of God, especially when the Apostle Paul talks about our salvation and when Jesus Christ himself describes God he assumes the nature of God. He assumes, and the Bible assumes, that God is one God, but in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just read it. Uh, you live by the Spirit. You were saved by Christ. You were raised like Christ was raised, the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit. And God Himself, the Father, who is God in Romans 8, orchestrated this for you. Think of your salvation this way. And throughout the New Testament, this is how your salvation is taught and described. The Heavenly Father orchestrates the plan of your salvation. 
He designed it. It's his blueprint. God the Son, also God, not diminished in any way, just as much God as the Father, implements the Father's plan. He takes the action, implements the plan, dies on the cross, is raised from the grave. Then the Holy Spirit activates the Father's plan. They are all three God. All of them are God, and they are one God. I say, Pastor Rob, I don't understand that. How can one God be three persons? Well, I don't understand it either. If we did, we'd be God. There are ways to describe it. There are ways to illustrate it. But there's no perfect way to grasp it because he is God. But it's certain that the God of the Bible is one God in three persons. And all three persons act on your behalf to bring about and secure your salvation. When you have a relationship with Christ, you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. When you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. They are God, one God, in three persons. Now, to the Muslim, this is blasphemy. Uh, this is the reason that Muslims, the primary reasons that Muslims hate Christians. Now, it's not the reason they hate Jews. They hate Jews for what we saw the last two weeks. But they hate Christians because they believe us to be pagan blasphemers. Then they say we actually worship three gods, that it's impossible for God to be one God in three persons, and it's certainly Allah would never have a relationship with you. That's not what Allah does. Allah is out there somewhere dictating how you behave. And if you are lucky enough for him to accept you because you have been religiously obedient in this life, well then good for you. But there is no way anyone would be accepted by Allah if they do not follow the dictates of Islam and Muhammad the prophet. The Quran teaches that Moses and Jesus and other prophets in the Bible were great prophets. The Quran teaches that, that Jesus himself was a great prophet, but the Muhammad is the greatest prophet. Jesus was a man, he was not God according to the Quran, but he was a great prophet. To them, Muhammad was the greatest prophet. He's referred to as the seal of the prophets. He capped everything off, he's the last prophet. And it's blasphemy to say anything else about Muhammad and certainly blasphemy to, cl to claim Jesus, who was a man and a prophet, to claim that he was God. Uh, you may have noticed also uh, when I was talking about Muhammad receiving the Koran, uh, they believe the Koran was pre-existent. Now pay attention to that. Uh, let me put it another way. According to Muslims, the Word of God was pre-existent, had, had been there forever until Allah gave it to Muhammad. See, a lot of Christians make, the mistake, make this mistake. Muhammad is to Islam as Jesus is to Christianity. That's not right. It would be more like Muhammad is to Islam as the Apostle Paul is to Christianity. The Quran is to Islam as Jesus Christ is to Christianity. Pre-existent word of God. John chapter 1. Yet another reason to them it's blasphemy that we say Jesus is the pre-existent God. Before he came in the flesh, he was always God and, re and re remains God today. We worship a different God. We worship a different God. 
for you and I, what's critical to understand in this, as believers in Christ, belief in the Trinity, that is, God is one God in three persons, is critical to your faith. We're the only faith in the world that believes that about God. And there are many deviant sects and cults that call themselves Christians, and they don't believe that about God. But we believe God is one God in three persons, all preexistent. And here's the best. God created you, not because he had to. You didn't fulfill anything for him. He created you because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. That's why God created you. He sent Christ to save you for the same reason. So you could be recreated in Christ, be born again in Christ. Father, Son, and Spirit do that for you. Never be deceived into thinking that the God of Islam is the same as the God of the Bible. It's not. You worship the one true God. You worship the one true God. A second difference is that they discern a different problem. They discern a different problem. Islam teaches the human problem is very simple. You're not a Muslim. They believe, like Christians do and like Jews do, that, that we are sinners. They believe that we are apart from God. But they believe that the only way that's going to change is if you submit to Islam. You submit to Allah. You follow Muhammad. So generally, the problem with Islam, as they see the problem of humanity, is that you're not a Muslim. And they intend to change that by force if necessary but certainly over time, and they have time on their side because you were born into Islam, not converted. Every person born into a Muslim family is Muslim. If they are to change that against aggressive oppression, against violence and hostility, if a person wants to change that, they have to be converted out of Islam because they've already been born into it. That's why Islam is growing so fast around the world. Every person born into a Muslim family is Muslim. So the way they see the problem then, and this, this concept of the problem has filtered into Western culture. That's why we are seeing, with the, with, the, with the war in the Middle East, we are seeing people side with Palestine. People actually think that the problem in the West is that you and I don't understand Muslims. Muslims are being oppressed. And that's just one step away from saying we need to be Muslims or at least like Muslims if we want to live at peace with Muslims. Uh, last weekend, Paul Curry, who's a comedian, was uh, performing his act at Soho Theater in London. Filled auditorium, a lot of people laughing, everything went great. And at the end of his performance, much to everyone's surprise, uh, Curry had a Palestinian authority flag and a Ukrainian flag brought out on the platform with him. Now the association is clear. What he meant to be doing by that is Ukraine has been invaded, they are oppressed, they need to be set free. Palestine has been invaded, they are oppressed, they need to be set free. Israelis, bad. Palestinians, good. And once he brought them out, he required everyone to stand and applaud the Palestinian flag. Nearly everyone did. 
But one or two folks didn't. A gentleman sitting up toward the front remained seated, and Paul Curie called him out. said, why did you not stand and applaud this flag? And he asked, did you not enjoy my act? And the man said, I enjoyed your act when it was an act, when it was comedy. This isn't funny. I'm not comfortable with it, and I'm not going to do it. And just like that, the whole crowd turned against him. Paul Curry led chants, free Palestine, free Palestine. In profanity-laced tirade, he yelled at the man and the man's family and others who they realized had refused to stand until they were in jeopardy of their life and they had to get out of the auditorium. Here's the irony of all of that. Soho Theater used to be a Jewish synagogue. It resembles what's happening in our world. The only thing that will solve the problem and, the, and what the problem is as far as Islam is concerned, as far as Palestine is concerned, is get them out. Get rid of them. Now Christianity perceives the problem quite differently. We agree that people are sinners. But the problem is we're sinners. I would not say to you, your problem is you're not a Baptist, before I said, are you a Christian? See the difference? People are sinners in need of a Savior, need to be born again in Christ. We tend to fall into the same error that Islam does, and Paul describes here as the mindset of the flesh, when we think religion will save us. Religion won't save you. Only Christ will save you. Coming to church won't save you, and it certainly won't change you. But being born again in Christ, set free in the Spirit of God, Paul says. Romans also says, all people have sinned, all people, and come short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And that's for anybody, born in any place in the world, of any ethnicity, any race, any education level. The glory, the beauty of God's promise in Christianity is if you acknowledge you're a sinner, he doesn't care where you've been born. He doesn't even care what you used to believe. He only cares that you come to Christ and you're saved. That's the gospel. The problem is not that you're not Baptist. The problem is not that you're not Muslim. The problem is whether or not you're saved and you admit to God that you're a sinner. So then third, we offer a different answer. We offer a different answer. For Islam, the answer is be religious. Uh, they follow the five pillars. And in short, the five pillars are those dictates of their religion that, that you must obey to be pleasing to Allah. You never know if you're pleasing to Allah until you die. But if you follow the five pillars, the idea is you live in obedience to Allah. It's the definition of fleshly religion, of arrogance and pride that says, I can please God. I can get to God. I can make Allah happy with me. But the Bible teaches and Christianity teaches that Christ came to us. We're the only religion in the world that believes that. Christ came to us to set us free, as Paul said in Romans 8, set us free from sin and death. And listen to that. To set us free. Islam enslaves. Religion enslaves. The flesh enslaves. 
I know a lot of people have nothing to do with Islam, but they are enslaved to addictions, they're enslaved to problems in their lives, they're enslaved to the flesh. You need to be set free in Christ. That's the only way you can be set free. But the Muslim is enslaved to that religious worldview that says, I have got to please God. If I do the five pillars, if I do them all the time, that ritual will somehow set me free. But that's not how it works. If you're free in Christ, it's because you've been born again in Christ and you are set free in Him. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news of the gospel. Islam is not a biblical religion. It's a religion that came about years and years and years, generations after Abraham, decades after Christ. But what's interesting is, you know, Satan doesn't have to be very creative. Satan's objective is to enslave people to religion. Christ's objective is to set you free. And when you come to Christ in faith, you are set free from sin and death. And Paul says your mindset becomes a mindset of the Spirit. Your walk, your lifestyle, your conduct becomes pleasing to God when you live by the Holy Spirit, that mindset in the Spirit. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. What's going on in Palestine, the Middle East right now? It's not just a political conflict. In fact, even more, it's a religious conflict. Between the people of God's word, God's lineage, and those who want to stop them, kill them, enslave them. And in all of this, Christians say, we have the gospel. And the gospel is for everybody, if you'll come to Christ. Uh, several years ago, the late author and pastor Tim Keller uh, was talking to a friend of his who was working on a doctorate in history. Uh, and they, they started talking about slavery in the world. And, and Tim Keller said to this historian, he said, uh, he said, I have a hard time getting my mind around how humanity could permit such a monstrosity as slavery, people enslaving other people. People, how could, how could they do that? And he asked him, do you, does history have an answer for that? And the historian said something interesting. He said, that's not the question a historian would ask. And Keller said, it's not. He said, no, a the historian, he said, would not ask, how could humanity permit this monstrosity? The historian looks at history and asks the question, why did it stop? The historian looks at history and the historian realized that every nation, every race enslaved people. It's the history of the world. It didn't just come about with Western Europeans. It didn't just come about here or there or with Muslims. Through history, that's what people did. They enslaved other people, sold other people as property, conscripted other people and forced them to work, treated them in horrible, terrible ways, but it was the way of the world. He said, the historian asks this question, why did it stop? Who suddenly realized this is a monstrous evil against humanity? When did someone ask the question, this must stop? And he answered simply, when Christianity came along. Because historians also know, without question, it is Christians who abolished slavery. In the West. And that abolishing of slavery spread 
throughout the world. It was Christians that came along and said, people are made in God's image. Christ will set you free. You should have the liberty to live your life for Christ. No human being should own another human being. No human being should enslave another human being. Christ sets you free. It was Christians who said that. And no one else had before them. See the difference? You and I serve a Christ. We serve a God whose objective is first and foremost to set people free from sin and death. And if he hasn't done that for you, he wants to. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, he wants you to. If you're living a religious life and you find yourself bound in the flesh to that arrogance that says, I can please God, he wants to set you free from that. All it takes is for you to acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and give your life to Jesus Christ. I hope you'll do that today. Maybe also this message this morning has cleared your head of some of what's going on in the world. And maybe you have Muslims in your family, good people, but they need Christ. Maybe you work with Muslims. Maybe you go to school with Muslims, good people, but they need Christ. Don't be distracted by someone else's religion, even if they practice it well. Always remember, those not in Christ are bound to sin and death. It's in Christ we are set free, and in Christ alone. That's not bigotry. That's not prejudice. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, God, for those who do not know Christ. We pray for those, Father, trapped in other religions, those in Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, wherever they are, God, whatever they're in, we pray for them, God. We pray for Christians and laborers throughout the world, Father, to bring the gospel to the world. We pray for our neighbors who need Christ. We pray for our friends who need Christ. We pray, God, that you would show us, Father, how to serve the gospel and serve Christ in their lives. And Father, I thank you, Father, for the truth of this text and this message and this fact from, from the Bible, that you are our God. You have set us free in Christ. If there's just one in this room, Father, or one at home that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray they would do that today by acknowledging their sin, repenting of their sin, and trusting Christ as their Lord and their Savior to be set free of sin and death. If there's believers in this room or at home, Father, and we, we've been thinking, God, that maybe every religion is the same. Maybe everybody's really serving the same God. Please forgive us for that. Teach us, Father, how to love our neighbors, how to share the gospel. Teach us, Father, who we need to pray for. You're bringing people to mind right now that we need to pray for. Show us that, Father, as well. And God, I pray that we would respond as you're calling us to respond today. Maybe there's some in this room or at home who need to make that next step of faith, God, to join fellowship with First Baptist Church or to commit to missions or commit to evangelism or sign up for a course or a D4 group, whatever it is, that we would grow in our faith. Help us to do that today as well. Speak to our hearts, God, that we would respond to Christ as you're calling us to respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.